Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Menashe. Today is a very special show. We have with us none other than CPA Mike Pine out of Dallas, Texas. Maybe some of you made a little bit too much money this year and you're anticipating having a tax problem come the spring. Now is the time, deep in the fourth quarter, to do some last-minute tax planning and see if there's ways you can solve that tax problem before the end of the fiscal year. Enjoy this really valuable segment with CPA Mike Pine. Well, welcome, everyone. Uh, welcome to our session tonight where we're going to be talking all about depreciation. Very exciting topic, especially if you're a CPA like Mike Pine, our guest tonight. And we're going to probably keep this to about 30 minutes in total. Uh, we're going to run this interview style where I lead uh, Mike through a, a series of questions that kind of frame the topic from an investor perspective. And then uh, we'll open it up to questions from folks in the audience as well. Maybe why don't we start, Mike, with uh, some introductions. I'll start with myself. I'm Victor Menashe. I'm one of the uh, senior partners here at Y Street Capital. We're a development company. We develop real estate all across the United States and a little bit in Canada. Uh, We develop multifamily apartments, storage, senior housing, Flex multi-tenant industrial, and we have a few thousand acres of land in our development pipeline as well. So over to you, Mike. Yeah, hi, I'm Mike Pine, and I agree with Victor. I don't think we're joking. Depreciation is incredibly exciting. It has the power to change your life big time. It has the power to change investment ROIs of multiple of 40-50% just by getting that depreciation. I have a firm here in Dallas-Fort Worth where we focus mainly on real estate um, and just proactive tax planning. And I'm excited to be here, Victor. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for being here. And one of the things I love about Mike and his whole team is that they're not just a commodity CPA. Um, And I mean that very deliberately because there are folks that are just transactional, they do the compliance work and that's it. And they see it once a year and thank you for the check and see you later. And Mike uh, and his team think strategically. Uh, So it's about structure. Uh, Tom Wheelwright is famous for saying, if you want to change your tax, change your facts, which means make sure not just are, are you receiving money, but what is the structure under which you receive that? And I believe that because the tax code is not just a way of extracting revenue from the population. It's also a series of incentives. And uh, those incentives are really giving you hints on what to do, what the government wants you to do, and how they're incenting you to do that through the tax code. Because if it was simply a matter of extracting money from the population, that could be done in a couple of dozen pages. And there's thousands and thousands of pages, which is all the different ways of giving the money back. So that's uh, uh, that's my perspective. So I'm excited to have this conversation. So Mike, let's start with the basics around, uh, and we're not gonna talk yet about bonus depreciation or cost seg or any of that stuff, we'll get to that. But let's just talk about how depreciation expense can be used to offset income for those that are investing in multifamily real estate and how that can be advantageous. Yeah. How about I start off with a quick primer on what depreciation is? I mean, I think we all have a concept, but let me just back up a minute. The IRS says, and our tax law says, if you buy an asset that you're going to use in a trader business, you can't deduct it immediately. 
generally speaking. Um, if it has a useful life of more than one year, then whatever the useful life is, as prescribed by the IRS, is how you can get your deductions over a period of years. For instance, if I want to be a ca taxi cab driver and I go buy a $10,000 car, the IRS says that car has a five-year useful life, even if it's a taxi. They don't, they don't differentiate. They don't make it real. But they say that car has a five-year useful life, and you've paid $10,000 for it, we'll let you deduct it over five years or $2,000 a year, again, generally speaking. So that's what depreciation is. Uh, where it gets ex really exciting for me is in real estate, in your world. The IRS lets us depreciate assets we use in trade or business, but some assets actually appreciate in real value. So with real estate done right, you can buy an asset that's appreciating in value going up, but the IRS is letting you take a deduction as if it was depreciating in value. Um, that's huge. So you have an asset, it's going up in value. The IRS has given you a tax deduction for it. It's even providing you cash flow, but you're getting a tax deduction for that depreciation. There's different ways of handling on different people's tax returns though. Um, real estate professionals, they, they, they're kind of in the promised land of taxes. Um, but I hear, and it, this drives me nuts, Victor. I hear so many times I'll get a prospective client that calls up for a consult and they'll say, yeah, but my CPA told me all this depreciation on this investment isn't going to help me because I'm not a real estate professional. And that, that is absolutely wrong, completely categorically wrong. You don't get the same benefits at the same time frame that a real estate professional does. But if you buy an asset, invest in real estate and you're receiving depreciation, that depreciation can offset that investment's income. Um, it can offset, if done right on your tax return, other passive income streams as well. So I wish I had this chart up. I built a chart a few months back that shows the difference in ROI on an asset investing in real estate through syndication versus taking the same investment, getting the same cash flow return. It was 8% ROI, getting cash on cash 8%. But then we added in the variable of, well, do we get to take depreciation and utilize it? And we did this for passive investors. So they're not real estate professionals. Those operating distributions they got, in some cases for seven years, were tax-free. So if you got the same dividend from a stock, you're going to pay tax on that as soon as your cash comes in your pocket or that tax year. If you get a distribution from an investment in real estate, and it's got depreciation, even if that's your only investment, you're not going to pay tax on it for a while until you've used up the depreciation that you couldn't use in the first year, like a real estate professional can. And you compare that in five years, you're going to get a rate of return almost 30% higher on, over that time um, just from the fact of depreciation. And that's not assuming you're compounding. If you take those tax savings you get each year and reinvest that, then you really see a huge delta between tax advantage investments and regular Wall Street investments. Um, you can snowball a heck of a lot faster in building financial freedom. Absolutely. Now, one of the counter arguments that I often hear that I'll put that in the rumor category, although there is truth to it, is uh, why bother taking depreciation because it's going to lower your cost basis and there's depreciation recapture and you're going to end up paying the tax anyway. Let's say you. Um, if you completely ignore a very important concept called the time value of money, and if you assume that depreciation recapture is, let's say you save $10,000 in taxes this year, but you're going to have to pay that exact same amount when you sell the asset in ordinary income through depreciation recapture, 
which is not the case because the longer the assets held, the lower your depreciation recapture is going to be. But even if that were the case, if I were to invest $100,000 with you, Victor, and I got to take $40,000, $50,000 of depreciation this year, and that reduced my taxes by $15,000. If I have that $15,000 in my pocket for the next five years and then have to turn around and pay it to the IRS, basically I just got a $15,000 interest-free loan for five years. Now, if I just go spend that at the beach, then the time value of money doesn't really matter. But if I take that money and grow it, it matters hugely. So whatever the delta is, it, even if the worst case scenario were, whatever tax savings you have today, you're going to pay back a depreciation recapture during when the exit comes. The delta between what I can make with that money today for the next five years, seven years, three years, that's a permanent difference that I got to keep. So if you ignore the time value of money, I kind of can buy that argument. But who ignores the time value of money that knows anything about finance, right? Exactly. Exactly. So. That's a natural segue. So when we're talking about time, the standard depreciation, if you're talking about a real estate asset, is 27 and a half years. Let's talk a little bit about um, taking that real estate asset and picking it apart into its constituent components. This is the land. These are the improvements. The refrigerators are depreciating a lot faster than the roof, a lot faster than, say, the asphalt, and so on. Um, what's the advantage of picking apart an asset into its constituent components like that through cost segregation? Well, the time value of money creates the major advantage. Um, if I, Hopefully this is not too elementary, Victor, but if I can back up what picking those components up really looks like, what does that mean, taking them apart or segregating them out? Um, perfect example is I'm under contract to close on a rental home, single-family rental home, at the end of this month. I'm paying $550,000 for that house. The IRS would say, hey, if you're gonna depreciate that, you can depreciate over 27 and a half years, straight line. But the IRS says, technically says you shouldn't do that because when you bought that house, you didn't just buy the sticks, the frame, the foundation, and the roof. You bought everything that's inside, the flooring, the countertops, the cabinetry, wiring, plumbing, et cetera, et cetera. All those things, we say you have to depreciate over a faster period, over five years or over seven years, or all the land improvements, the driveway over 15 years. I did get a driveway with this house. Um, when you break those out, you're accelerating the depreciation. Instead of taking that depreciation over 27 and a half years, you're taking a lot of it over five years and over seven years. So you're increasing the tax deduction, not the cash doesn't in fact cash at all. You already bought the asset, but I'll be increasing the tax deduction in the first five years, the first seven years, if I don't even go into bonus depreciation. So that's a natural place to segue back into the prior discussion on depreciation recapture. So am I right in saying that you buy a property, you hold it for five years, you depreciate your five-year property as part of that cost segregation over those five years, you still have 10 years left on the 15 year property and you still have 22 and a half years left on the 27 and a half year property and so on, uh, that five year property now no longer comes back into your recapture because it is fully used up. Is that right? Kind of, sort of, what it really comes, the reason, well, depreciation recapture is a hard concept to teach because it's a hard concept to calculate for each and every individual taxpayer, depending on 
whether they took it that any depreciation gets their active income versus their passive income. Um, generally speaking, yes, the longer you hold the asset, the less your depreciation recapture is going to be. Um, and, and you can generally say the rule, what you just explained is a good rule of thumb, but it's not always going to calculate out that way. Understood. And by the way, I probably should have said this at the very beginning. We're not here to provide you tax advice tonight. I'm certainly not. Uh, you know, if you said to the IRS, where did you get your tax advice? And it was from s some dude in Canada. Um, <laughs> that would probably not go well. Yes, that's why we have Mike Pine here, who is a rock star CPA with us. But even then, your mileage will vary based on your own individual circumstance. So we're here to educate you to ask the right questions of your own CPA, unless Mike's your CPA as well, in which case that's awesome. Or, but ask questions of your own CPA that are specific to your own personal circumstance. So, okay, so we're understanding a little bit better uh, recapture. Now let's talk about uh, bonus depreciation that a lot of people are um, very excited about, of course. It's one of these things that is going away slowly bit by bit, uh, but still uh, attractive this year and next and the year after that. Yeah, very attractive. Um, right now, the law that was passed in the 2017 Tax Cut and Jobs Act, it said we get 100% depreciation, bonus depreciation from 2017 to 22, and that starts going down 20% per year. This is the first year that's gone down in 2023. We could take 80%. Next year, assuming all the laws stay the same, um, we'll get 60%. And then until it finally goes away, 20% per year in 2027. Even if it goes away, cost segregation, accelerated depreciation, time value money don't change. I worked on my first cost segregation at PricewaterhouseCoopers in the year 2000, before we'd ever had anything called bonus depreciation. And it was something that had been around for two decades at that point, because it was still very beneficial to the real estate owners. Um, and then the IRS actually prescribes it in their tax law. They say, you have to depreciate stuff based on our class lives. And we say that refrigerator in the house you just bought has a much lower life, a five-year life versus the 27. So you're actually breaking in the rules with the IRS by not doing a cost seg. But they don't mind because you pay more taxes if you don't. They like the time value money too. Um, but even getting 60% bonus or 40% bonus, when you consider time value money, it's a heck of a lot better than getting 0% bonus. But honestly, and I shouldn't do this where I'm being recorded and people are going to see this by predicting the future. Bonus depreciation has been around in some shape or form ever since 9-11 happened. It was the first retroactive tax cut I got to experience in my career. In 20, 2002, they passed the bonus depreciation law and said, for any assets you bought in 2001, you get to take it. It was only 50% back that day. It has survived and been renewed and expired and been renewed by four administrations now. It has, it comes out, it's been Republicans that renew it, Democrats renew it. Every time it expires, there's a bipartisan uproar. There's still some bipartisanship, even on tax cuts here in America, that it helps the economy. It's been proven over and over now for over two decades. When you allow businesses to deduct the expenses they pay to place assets and service, businesses will invest more in business. 
one, like you mentioned, the entire tax code is a series of incentives that our society and our Congress has come together and say, this is what we need for the betterment of our country, whether it's to lift all boats or to provide affordable housing, it's in there. And bonus depreciation, even though we don't have enough affordable housing yet, in this country, we have a heck of a lot more than we did 20 years ago based because businesses were able to take a tax deduction by investing in capital. So I, I will be shocked. And again, I shouldn't say that because I've been shocked by our politics in this country a lot over the last seven years. But I will be absolutely shocked if no matter who's in office and who's running for office next year, if they don't reinstitute it. It's already been the, the Republicans in Congress have passed two bills already trying to reinstate it. Both of them are going to make it a retroactive 100%. Didn't get anywhere in the Senate yet. But next year's an election year, and that's good for taxes. I think we'll see some good changes in that, and I think it will come back. Fascinating. So let's talk a little bit about um, depreciation expense and how that can be used to offset income. Some investors choose to invest using retirement funds, whether it's in an IRA, whether it's in a Roth. Um, can you talk a little bit about the impact for those who are investing using retirement funds versus cash? Generally speaking, retirement funds don't pay tax, so they don't really need the tax benefit. They, they don't get any benefits. So, benefits. so tax deductions can only reduce your taxes that you already owe. Um, so it doesn't help retirement accounts, generally speaking. Uh, it's good to get an asset class besides Wall Street in your retirement portfolio, but you're not going to get any tax benefits passed to you if you invest through your self-directed IRA. However, there's this thing called UBIT, Unrelated Business Income Tax. When you invest in debt-financed investments like real estate, you don't go pay 100% down to buy an apartment complex. You pay maybe 20% down and you finance the rest or 30% down. The IRS, as part of their rules that they made a long time ago, and a lot of the Treasury Department really promulgated these rules, but they say that they thought, hey, we don't want people investing their retirement money in, we don't want them trading on margin, basically, in their retirement account. So they came up with these debt finance rules and say, if you're debt financed, in order to steer people away from that, then any income you get from debt finance is going to be taxable income, even to a retirement account. Suddenly, your retirement account has to pay taxes, which is completely not the point of putting money in a tax-free retirement account, right? So that only applies to all investment accounts besides 401ks and a few others. But IRAs, if you have an IRA, self-directed IRA, if you invest in something that's debt finance and get taxable income from it, you have to pay UBIT tax or you're supposed to. However, to calculate UBIT, you're allowed, you're supposed to follow the same rules that we would follow in determining your taxable income. And they say, well, you don't have UBIT if you have depreciation in excess of your operating income. So even for IRAs, depreciation is helpful because it prevents them from having to pay UBIT. They get a bunch of depreciation allocated to them during bonus depreciation years, a whole bunch in the first year. And then in year two, year three, they're hoping, expecting, um, and like your funds do, they perform and get income allocated to them and cash flow distributions allocated to them. Well, if they have a big depreciation roll forward that they didn't get to use, basically a net operating loss carry forward, they are not hitting new bit until they've used up all their depreciation. So that's helpful. But then just one other tidbit, 
you don't, you're not stuck paying UBIT if you're an IRA. You just roll it over into a self-directed 401k, and 401ks are not subject to UBIT. Um, but again, depreciation doesn't really help the, the 401k. It's just the asset class that you're invested in that helps it. Love it. So let's talk a little bit about um, investment structure and how this can affect things. So sometimes people invest in a single discrete project, could be a syndication. Sometimes they invest in a fund that uh, may have multiple assets under that in it, each in their own subsidiary entity that are invested in by the fund. Can you talk a little bit about the impact of depreciation or bonus depreciation in those projects if they're in a fund structure? Is it any different than if it was a discrete investment, assuming they're all flow through entities uh, with a partnership election on their on their tax return? Yeah, the same partnership tax law applies to funds versus single-use entities or single-purpose entities, as long as they're all passed there. It's partnership tax laws. I happen to love partnership tax laws, and they're a lot even more interesting than depreciation, Victor, because they say you can allocate income and expenses, allocate items like depreciation in any manner that has substantial economic effect. Now, that alone is thousands of pages of write-up to figure out what that means, and a lot of people, even the IRS, still haven't figured it out. But some funds can say, all right, we're going to allocate depreciation to all the people that were only invested when we bought this asset. That's that's allowable. Some funds will say, no, we're going to let even the new investors share in it because we're helping diversify the original investors. You can, you just got to read the operating agreement and the offering memorandum to understand how's that depreciation going to be allocated. Uh, but you still, you get the depreciation benefits regardless of whether it's a fund or an LP. You just don't get them if it's a REIT. A lot of people or uh, one of those publicly traded partnerships. A lot of people don't realize that, but you don't get to take deductions. You don't get the benefits of depreciation in a publicly traded partnership. You do in in an actual partnership. Oh, fascinating. So, what are what are some of the main highlights that you think we've missed uh, before we open it up to questions? Um, I would just like to kind of follow on what you started in the beginning and. Oh. With, with what real right says about taxes, and he's absolutely right. The tax code, I think this is his quote, less than one half of 1% of these tens of thousands of pages of tax law actually address the levying of taxes, the assessment of taxes. But 99.5% or more of the tax law addresses and tries to incentivize our society to do things, to do our patriotic duty. I. I, I love Canada, Victor, but I want America to work first, and I'm going to follow these laws to do my duty for America. Um, and I think we should. You can choose. Tax law is not sexy for most people. Forgive me. I think it is, but I get it. I'm not like normal people. You can choose to either be oblivious to it or to stick your head in the sand with it and just be a victim to taxes, which is what you are. You're being a victim unless you choose to utilize it, embrace it, and leverage tax law to help you build your financial freedom. I think the tax code, the internal revenue code to me is a yellow brick road of how to find financial freedom. If you could add, just again, consider the time value of money and compounding. If you could increase your ROI by 20% or 30% a year by mitigating your taxes and doing proactive tax strategy in your life, 
imagine what that does to you 10 years from now or 20 years from now. You're basically investing more money because you're getting the government who took your money, you're getting them to give it back to you so that you can make these investments. So make a choice, change your facts, like Wheelwright says, embrace the tax code and use it to leverage your financial freedom growth. That's my last, last comment before I open it up. Well, Mike, this is fantastic. Thank you so much. And for the listeners at home, have an awesome rest of your day. Go make some great things happen. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.